If you want to turn in your Bible, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. Um, we're going to look at a few other things. So kind of put your finger in Philippians chapter 1 and then turn back over to the book of Acts. <clears throat> back in the fall when, when I started this series in Philippians, we looked at the first, first sermon, we looked at the kind of the background to the church at Philippi, how it came about. We learned about that in Acts chapter 16. Um, Doug spoke about that just a couple of weeks ago, um, and I covered it back in the fall. Um, just the, the significance and how that came about, how Paul was directed by the Spirit to cross over into Europe um, and to, to plant the church at Philippi. And we looked at how that came about. And then we started to walk through kind of verse by verse. We looked at the first 11 verses last time, and we looked at the partnership in the gospel Today we're going to get to another section where Paul kind, of is, Paul kind of is to the church at Philippi to let them know how he's doing. But I want to give some background to that because Paul is writing this letter from Rome. He's been taken there. He is um, imprisoned. We'll look, we'll look at that in a second. It's kind of a unique situation. But I want to, I want to kind of walk us through how he got to this place. Look in... Um, Acts chapter 19. You don't have to turn to all these if you don't want to, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just kind of highlight some verses where it talks about how he gets to where he gets. Paul had a strong desire to go to Rome. This is mentioned um, three different places. First in Acts chapter 19, verse 21. It says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. He had a great desire to go to Rome. In Romans chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he says this. For God is, he's writing to the church at Rome in this instance. He says, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow... By God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. And then later on in, in Romans chapter 15, we see this. He says, he's writing this right at the tail end of his letter. He says, by, in verse 19, chapter 15, verse 19, he says, By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But, as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. So he's been hindered from getting to Rome because the Spirit has directed him to all these other places, but he still has this desire. Verse 23 says, But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions... That's a staggering statement right there, okay? I've covered all these areas. The gospel's been to all these places. Now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. He says, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ." Now, he does eventually get to Rome, but he doesn't get there in the way that he envisioned. At the conclusion of his third missionary journey, he finds himself back in Jerusalem, as he's just said, he's taking these gifts back to Jerusalem that he's collected for the church there. As he's in Jerusalem, he's arrested. The Jews there in Jerusalem are not happy with this man who was once one of them. And there he's arrested. You can read about this in Acts chapter 21. 
somewhere around AD 58. He's held in a prison in Caesarea for two years, and he's bounced around kind of from trial to trial while the authorities try to decide what to do with this guy named Paul. Now, being a Roman citizen, which he was, he eventually makes his appeal to Caesar. And once he's done that, they have no choice but to send him to Rome. And so they put him on a ship with his traveling companions and soldiers to guard him, and they make their journey to Rome. Um, Quite a difficult journey. They're shipwrecked on the island of Malta over the winter. Um, While he's on Malta, he's bitten by a viper that jumps out of a fire, um, survives that, eventually making his way to Rome. If you're still in Acts, look over in Acts chapter 28. He begins his Roman imprisonment somewhere around A.D. 60. However, he's a prisoner with some unusual circumstances. Acts 28 verse 16 says, When he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So we learn from this verse that he's, he's by himself. He's allowed to stay by himself, but he has a soldier who is guarding him. Jump down to verse 20. The local Jews had been coming to see him. He'd invited them to come. He wanted to talk to them. That was kind of his practice wherever he went. He went to the, to the Jews first. He would often go to the synagogues to meet with the Jews, um, to share the truths of the gospel with them. Verse 20 says, For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. So he's chained here. He's in chains. He's chained to a guard. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. What is the hope of Israel? Anybody? Jesus. I heard it. Jesus, the gospel. Jesus is the hope of Israel. So Paul's saying here, I'm in, I'm in chains because of the hope of Israel, because of the Messiah who has come. I'm in chains because of Jesus. Uh, look down at verse 23, same chapter. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. So the Jews are continuing, they're continuing to come to hear more about him. But we learn here that he's, he's at a lodging place, okay? He's not being held in a prison. He's not being held, you know, from, from verse 16, you, you could make the assumption that he was being held perhaps in solitary confinement. He's not being held in solitary confinement. He's being held in a place of lodging. So he's under house arrest with a guard uh, who is chained to him. Jump down to verse 30. It says, He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. So he's a prisoner in a rented house chained to a guard for two years. The word for chain that's used back up in um, verse, 20, uh, verse 20, yeah. It's not the typical word for chain that's often found in the New Testament. It's actually, it's interesting. It's the Greek word halusis, and it means a short chain, and was likely a chain that's similar in length, maybe a little bit longer, to our modern-day handcuffs. Okay, so I want you to think about this and picture this. For two years, he's chained to a guard who's with him 24 hours a day, seven days a week, in six-hour shifts. That was his life. No privacy. He was free in the sense that he wasn't in a prison cell, but he's under house arrest, very limited movement, with a guard chained to him every day. So that brings us to today's passage in Philippians. So if you have your finger there, turn back over to Philippians chapter 1. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi from Rome while under house arrest to let them know how he's doing. Okay, they've heard of his imprisonment. They've sent Epaphroditus to see how he's doing and to minister to him. And so Paul is now sending Epaphroditus back to the church at Philippi with this letter to let them know how he is. 
Now, interesting to think about, the Philippians, years earlier from this, had witnessed the miraculous release of Paul and Silas from the Philippian jail. Okay, we, we learn about that in Acts chapter 16. They'd seen the dramatic way in which God rescued Paul and Silas. They had seen the saving work that he had done in the lives of the Philippian jailer and his family. And they could very well be wondering why this isn't happening again. Why isn't God rescuing Paul from this Roman imprisonment? So last time we looked at the great partnership that Paul had with the church at Philippi. It was a church that he started, a people that he dearly loved. And so after he opens this letter with expressions of thanksgiving for their partnership, after he shares with them why and how he prays for them, he moves on to give them this update of his imprisonment. And more so than his condition, he's writing to let them know what the impact that all this is having on the spread of the gospel. So I want us to read this together. I want us to go back to the beginning of the letter, starting in verse 1. And I want you to follow along with me as I read. But I want you to try to hear this as it was meant to be heard. Not, with, not broken up with verses and headings, but as a letter. Okay, As a letter from a dear friend. So follow along with me as I read. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict, afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. I want us to notice right off the bat this morning that what's, what has happened to Paul, his imprisonment in Rome, is secondary to him. Of prime importance to him is what is happening with the gospel. When you look at some of his letters in the New Testament, it's not hard to see his passion for the gospel, his compulsion to see the gospel spread. Now, we're going to throw some references up on the screen here in a minute. And I would encourage you to, to jot these down. Go back to them from time to time. Because Paul is an example for us to follow when it comes to the desperate desire to know God and to make him known. This was his ambition. Romans 1.15. We'll start there. Paul says this. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who, in, who are in Rome. There was an eagerness about the Apostle Paul to share the gospel. This is what he wanted to do. This was his calling. The ne very next verse, Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. There's no shame here in Paul. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel and it is his eager desire 
to share it with everyone everywhere. Romans 15, 16, Paul says, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. He recognized this as a calling upon his life from God. It was his priestly duty to serve God, to share the gospel. Romans 15, 19. He says, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Again, we, we looked at this a little bit earlier. That's a, it's a staggering statement. He's been so faithful in proclaiming the gospel of Christ that he's covered this entire region. He's been all over the place, planting churches, sharing the gospel. And yet, his ambition hasn't wavered. He wants to go further. Romans 15, 20, the next verse says, Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Now think about this for a minute. I was challenged by this as I was studying the last couple weeks. What, what are my ambitions? Is my ambition to retire someday um, in a cabin in the mountains or a bungalow by the beach playing disc golf or whatever? Is that what I live for? Is that my ambition Paul's ambition, his goal in life, was to share the gospel. I was challenged by that. 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Again, just reaffirming his calling by God on his life to preach the gospel. This is what he wanted to do. This is what his life was about. 1 Corinthians 9, 16. Listen to this. For I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. And then he says this. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Wow. Woe to me if I don't do this. 1 Corinthians 9.23 says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. 2 Corinthians 10.16 He says, So that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. He's always wanting to go to the next place. Where can I go from here? Where is God going to lead me next? 1 Thessalonians 2, 2 speaks of his boldness. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. It didn't matter what he was facing. It just didn't matter to him. I want to share the gospel. What matters most to Paul is the advance of the gospel. That's what I've kind of titled the message today. It was to advance the gospel of God's saving work in Christ. The messenger here, where he finds himself now, the messenger is imprisoned, but the message is not. And so that brings us to our first point today. The gospel advances in spite of circumstances. Let's read this again. Verse 12. I want you to know, brothers... That what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Okay, remember, he's, he's in prison. And yet the gospel is advancing. And he's wanting his dear brothers and sisters back in Philippi to know this. That it's God's will that he is where he is. That he's in, under house arrest chained to a guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This is God's will for Paul at this point in time. Now, the gospel advances in two ways here that we're going to look, about, look at. First off, Paul talks about the advancement of the gospel outside the church. Okay, look at this in verse 
13. Well, let's put it together. Verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The imperial guard was the elite of the elite in the Roman army. And there were fairly small but significant number in the imperial guard. They carried a lot of sway in Roman society to the point of having the ability to basically name the emperor. What they said went. So these are, these are mighty men who are fighting machines. Um, and they are the ones that are tasked with guarding the Apostle Paul. And can you imagine this? He's got a captive audience for six hours at a time. Those guys can't go anywhere. They can't get away from him because the chain is short. And so all of them, the ones that have guarded him and the ones who haven't, have heard about the Apostle Paul. They've, they've heard why he is in chains. And no doubt, when one guy gets off his shift, he's going back to the barracks and he's talking about this Apostle Paul guy. Some comment, Paul mentions here, uh, not only the imperial guard, but he says to all the rest. Some commentators suggest that the rest is the rest of Rome. Everyone, everyone knows why this guy is here. Everyone knows that his imprisonment is for Christ. The circumstances around Paul's imprisonment and his manner, his manner in the midst of it, make it clear to all observers that he was not just another prisoner, but he was an emissary of Jesus Christ. And no doubt his witness led to the conversion of many. So in spite of the circumstances that Paul finds himself in, the gospel was advancing outside of the church. But it's also advancing inside the church. Look at verse 14. Paul says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul's imprisonment has given the Christians... Christian brothers and sisters who make up the church in Rome, it's given them greater confidence and boldness. They're looking at Paul's situation, and in many ways they're in awe of what God is doing through him. Because no doubt they're hearing the testimony that's going out through the imperial guard. They're hearing the rumors that are going around the streets of Rome about this guy who's being held under house arrest. And it's giving them greater confidence in God, to share the gospel. They saw that Paul had joy in the midst of his trials. They saw that God would take care of Paul in such circumstances. They'd witnessed that the church at Philippi had sent Epaphroditus to come minister to Paul. They saw that God could still use Paul in spite of his circumstances. So the believers in the church in Rome are emboldened to speak the word without fear. They are sharing the gospel with more courage and boldness because their confidence in the Lord has grown as they've watched Paul remain faithful to proclaim the gospel even while in chains. This right here is why I love to keep the persecuted church in front of us as a church here at LifePoint. It's something that has, I would say, has become a passion of mine over the years. It's my hope that the joy that they have, brothers and sisters around the world who face difficult circumstances daily, it's my hope that the joy that they have in the midst of those difficult circumstances and suffering would embolden us to speak the word without fear, that our courage and our boldness would grow, 
that our confidence in the Lord's presence and power in our lives would grow because of their testimony. There are modern-day Pauls all over the world who desire nothing more than to see the gospel advance. I want to share, I want to take some time this morning to share a few stories with you. Um, This is a book that we got last year. There's still a number of copies out on the uh, information table in the foyer. Grab one on the way out. They're free. Um, take, take one with you. And I want to I share a couple of these stories with you. Mohammed and his wife are from Mosul, the largest city in northern Iraq. And at that time, the largest city ISIS had conquered. Mohammed was a Sunni Muslim when about 10 years before our meeting, he had a dream in which Jesus Christ came and spoke personally to him. When Muhammad woke up, he made the decision to follow Christ, the one who would come and speak personally to him. At first, Muhammad's wife was very upset that her devout Sunni husband would become an apostate, an infidel. How could he turn his back on the true faith? But about three months later, she had the very same dream Muhammad had described to her. Jesus came and spoke to her personally. When she woke up, She made the same decision her husband had. She too would follow Jesus. Having been saved by Christ, Mohammed began to tell others in their neighborhood in Mosul. Now, now he wasn't just an apostate. He was actively encouraging other Muslims to also become apostates. Their house was burned down. Police promised an investigation, but unsurprisingly, no suspects were ever found. Mohammed and his family moved to a new house and began to talk about Jesus to their neighbors there. In 2014, with ISIS about to take the city, Mohammed knew he must get his family out. ISIS wouldn't just burn their house down. They would give Mohammed one chance to return to Islam, then execute him when he didn't. The family fled Mosul, eventually coming to a camp near Erbil. Because Muhammad's ID card still said Sunni Muslim, he and his family were sent to the tent in the Sunni camp. But the camp wasn't 100% Sunni anymore. Since their arrival, Muhammad and his family had led people from two other families to Christ. Even in the camp, they were witnesses. Given two UN-issued tents on their little concrete slab, Muhammad and his family, they had five children, decided to live in one tent and reserve the other for prayer and Bible study meetings. They were already having an impact, but that impact wasn't unnoticed. Muhammad told us that either he or his wife stay with the tents at all times. They fear Sunnis angry about their faith might might destroy the tents if they leave. As foreigners, our presence draws attention. We can't stay long. But after hearing Muhammad's testimony, I asked him, what are you praying for? What are you asking God for? He spoke. Then the translator said, we don't have to ask God for anything. We have everything we need. We are happy. There's great truth in what Muhammad said. We have everything we need. We have a roof over our heads. We have food for today. And we have a mission field in every direction right outside our door. What more could we ask for? Here's another one. I remember on my first VOM, that's Voice of the Martyrs, my first VOM trip to China, our team was going to meet a pastor who'd been arrested multiple times in the previous three months. He led a large unregistered church that met on Tuesdays and police and religious affairs authorities had taken to arresting him each Tuesday morning so that he couldn't lead the services. They'd hold him all day or even overnight, then let him go, just so he couldn't lead his growing flock. So as we went to visit, I had a picture in my mind of this poor, abused pastor. I thought how much of a blessing it would be to him for foreigners to come and cheer him up, because he'd no doubt be feeling deeply discouraged. My ideas couldn't have been much further from reality. When we arrived at his apartment, he was smiling and joyful. He was thrilled that people in his area were meeting Jesus Christ, thrilled that his flock was growing. 
If the price of effective ministry was a few measly arrests or a few nights in jail, then so what? It was worth it to see lives changed and Christ's kingdom grow. I remember clearly how he showed us the bag. Okay, listen to this. I remember clearly how he showed us the bag he took with him to church. It had a blanket and a change of clothes. It was his jail bag. And he was packed and ready to go. I turned to his wife sitting to the side as we sipped cups of tea. Don't you worry about him, I asked, pointing to the pastor. Why should I be worried, she answered through the translator. God will take care of him. And then there's one other one that I came across just this week on Voice of the, Voice of the Martyrs. It was a, their prayer site. Bimala Thokar. I don't know if that name is pronounced correctly. It's not her real name anyway. But she came to faith in Christ in 2021 through the witness of her daughter. The Buddhist people of their Nepalese village disapproved of Bimala and her family becoming Christians and sharing the gospel with others. Local Buddhist monks called the police to accuse Bimala of evil practices and illegally spreading the Christian religion. At the police station, Bimala answered the charges by explaining her Christian faith. The police officer in charge identified himself as Christian and encouraged Bimala in her faith. No charges were filed. Instead, villagers who had previously shunned Bimala and verbally abused her slowly began to accept her and ask her to pray with them. Bimala remains strong in her faith and desires that a fellowship of Christians would be started in her village. These are three stories of countless stories that you can read today in books like this, on websites like Voice of the Martyrs. And I hope that they serve as encouragement to us, as believers here in the West. And much like those believers in Rome who were emboldened in their faith by Paul's circumstances, that we would be emboldened in our faith because of the circumstances of brothers and sisters around the world. An interesting side note, kind of as we wrap up this first point, is Paul's unique perspective in all this. Would he have preferred not to be chained to a guard living under house arrest? I'm sure he would have. But he knew that God's gospel would advance in spite of his circumstances. He knew that God would use him to advance his gospel in spite of it all. The reason that he knew this was because it hadn't been all that long ago that he was on the other side of all of this. I want us to if you want to if you want to turn there you're welcome to Acts chapter 7. I want to read this because this is amazing to me. So Stephen is giving his famous speech. He gets to the end of it. Verse 54, chapter 7. says, Now when they heard these things, so this is all the, the people that he was, the, the Jewish leaders that he was standing before. When they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And I want to pause there for a second because I love this. When Jesus ascended to heaven after his death and resurrection, what does the scriptures say that he did? He sat down at his father's side. But in this moment, he is standing. He's standing for Stephen. And I just, that, it blows me away. And it's so awesome to think about that our Savior stood on that day for Stephen. He said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. 
Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul, Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. (coughs) Excuse me. Look at verse 4, though. Now those who were scattered, what did they do? They went about preaching the word. Paul could minister effectively and bring glory to God in less than ideal circumstances. He didn't need everything to be easy and set in order to be fruitful. He knew that in spite of his circumstances, the gospel would advance because he saw it firsthand when he was the persecutor. When he was doing everything that he could to shut this Jesus movement down, all it did was spread like wildfire. The gospel advances in spite of our circumstances. This leads us to our second point. The gospel advances in spite of critics. Turn back over to Philippians. Verse 15 through 18. Let's read this together. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Before we get to the critics, I want to look at the others. Paul says there are others who proclaim Christ from goodwill. So these are brothers and sisters who are doing it out of love. They know that Paul is in chains for the defense of the gospel. These are folks who genuinely and sincerely proclaim the gospel of Christ because they have become confident in the Lord. These are the people from the previous verse. They're bold to speak without fear. But then we have the critics. They've also been emboldened by Paul's imprisonment. They're also more bold in their speaking the word without fear. But Paul says they do so from a place of envy and rivalry. Paul knew that some preached because they wanted to surpass Paul in ministry. They wanted to promote their own name, their own place above Paul's. These people were glad that Paul was imprisoned because they felt that this gave them a competitive edge over him in what they considered to be the contest of preaching the gospel. They were motivated, at least in part, by a competitive spirit, which unfortunately is too often common among preachers. It's really, it's amazing to think about. But you don't have to look far, even in today's age, and you see this very thing. We're on the same team. And yet there's this competitive spirit that comes up in people. The former proclaim Christ from selfish ambition, Paul says. He's talking about those who are envious of him. They have this rivalry. Those preaching the gospel out of wrong motives are infected with selfish ambition which makes them serve, but not sincerely. Paul's actually going to come back to this phrase in chapter 2 that we'll get to on down the road. Now, ambition is not necessarily bad. We talked about this earlier. Paul's ambition was to spread the gospel. There's nothing wrong in wanting to be the best that we can be for God, but 
selfish ambition is most concerned about who? Me. It's most concerned about a successful image. It's most concerned about striving for... Sorry, it's, it's concerned about a successful image rather than striving for true success before God. These people, for whatever reason, are hoping to inflict more pain, more sorrow on Paul. Those who preached Christ from wrong motive even hoped to add to his afflictions. Their competitive hearts didn't only want to win for themselves, they also wanted Paul to lose. It's as if they wanted Paul to admit that others were more effective in ministry than he was. They didn't understand that Paul honestly didn't care because he didn't have a competitive spirit in ministry. Before we look at the, the, the last verse, it's important for us to see kind of a few things here. Notice that in these three verses, he uses some variation of preach Christ. In verse 15, he says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Verse 17 says, the former proclaim Christ. And then in verse 18, he says, Christ is proclaimed. Three times here. There is no difference here. Hear this, okay? There's no difference in the content of what is being proclaimed. The gospel is being proclaimed. Christ is being complained. That's really important. Paul here is not addressing false teachers. These people are not false teachers. They are proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Here's what John MacArthur said about this. He says, now you, you, well may, um, you say, you mean they really preached the true gospel? Could, it, could that actually affect anybody? John MacArthur says, yes. A preacher with a jealous, envious, selfish motive can still be used of God. And I'll tell you why. He says he probably can't be used of God as much as God would want to use him, but he can still be used of God to this degree. He said, listen carefully. The truth is more powerful than the package it comes in. He says, you can put the word of God and the saving gospel in the mouth of a man with bad motives, and the truth is still the truth. It is still powerful. He quotes an old commentator named John Eddy. He says, because the power lies in the gospel, not the gospeler. It lies in what is preached, not the preacher. And the listener hears only the preaching. He doesn't see the motive. So the difference was not in content. The difference here is in motive. People preach the gospel more energetically, motivated by Paul's imprisonment. Some were motivated in a good way. Some were motivated in a bad way. Yet nonetheless, they were motivated. And Paul could rejoice in that. Remember that Paul's concern here is not with the content of the gospel being preached. He knows what is being preached. Christ is being proclaimed. Only the motives are his concern. He's bringing this out. The motives of some people is wrong. I want you to turn with me back to um, just a couple of books back. Galatians chapter 1. I want you to look at this because this is, you see a stark difference between what Paul says in Galatians to what he says here in Philippians. This is what Paul says to the church in Galatia. Galatians chapter 1, I'm going to start reading in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. 
Paul, in his letter to the church at Galatia, is confronting false teaching. In Philippians, he's not confronting false teaching. He's mentioning false motives, wrong motives. Paul always objected if he thought a false or distorted gospel was being preached, even if those were from the best of motives. Paul did not hesitate to confront false teaching and false teachers, but that's not what's happening here in Philippians. It's not about what was being taught. It's about the motives behind it. And at the end of the day, Paul could say, what then? That means, so what? If you preach the gospel, I don't care what your motives are. If your motives are bad, God's going to deal with that. But at least the gospel is being preached. But if you preach a false gospel, it doesn't matter how good your motives are. You are dangerous and you must stop preaching your false gospel because good motives don't excuse a false message. And so Paul can say it doesn't matter. In every way, whether in pretense, that's a pretended purpose, or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And then he comes back to that major theme of this short letter, joy. In that, he says, I rejoice. If Paul's imprisonment could not hinder the gospel, neither could the wrong motives of some. God's work was still getting done. And that was a cause for rejoicing. So where does that leave us today? First, I would say to you today, if you are here and you're not a follower of Jesus, the gospel is for you. And you might very well be saying, well, what is the gospel? We sang about it earlier, but I want, I want to read to you about it. 1 Corinthians 15. This is what Paul says to the church at Corinth. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And here it is. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. Here's the gospel. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. That's the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh, who was crucified on a cross as the perfect sacrifice for your sins and for mine, who rose again three days later, conquering death and the grave, and who comes to dwell in the hearts of those who call upon his name by his Holy Spirit. That is the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ today. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, delivered his first sermon. I want to read this to you too, because I love this. This is from the book of Acts, chapter 2. He laid these things out. He laid these very same things out to the people who were listening. And it says in verse 37, Now when they, those who had heard this sermon, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so I echo the words of Peter to you today. If you're here today and you are not yet a follower of Jesus. Repent. Call upon his name in repentance. Turn from your sin. Follow him. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, I want to read something again from John MacArthur. 
He said, you may say, well, what does this say to me in reference to this passage that we've looked at today? Do you ever think about your life? Somehow, some way you may say to yourself, I can't go preach the gospel. I can't go spread the gospel. I can't be a missionary. I can't be a pastor. Maybe not even a Bible teacher. I'm stuck with my job. MacArthur says, hmm, it's an interesting parallel, isn't it? Are you chained to a desk? Are you chained to a place on the assembly line? Are you chained to a classroom? Are you chained to a car as you move around from place to place, meeting people in a sales position? Wherever you are, look at it as a point from which you can further the gospel. Whatever it is, live in your place. Live in your chained place in such a way as to make the gospel believable. Maybe it's a hard place. Probably not as hard as Paul's. Maybe it's a difficult place. But that's all the more opportunity to demonstrate the reality of a transformed life. He says, people say to me, you know, it's awfully hard to be a witness in my job. He says, my reaction is, it'd probably be harder to be a witness if you had a perfect situation. If you have a very difficult situation, you probably have the easiest place to be a witness because the contrast is so obvious and your character will be so manifest if under adversity you demonstrate Christ's likeness. That's the challenge. And that's the challenge for us today. Will we make it our ambition to proclaim Christ. I want to leave us with one last thought, and it comes from one of our persecuted brothers. His name is Pastor Omar. He lives in Bangladesh. Karis, if you put that up on the screen, this is what he says. Our life is temporary here. I have a small amount of time to preach the gospel. I don't believe that I will stop. Would you pray with me?